Grace and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. We'll read to you some uh, verses from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Since then we have such a hope, we act with great boldness, not like Moses who put a veil over his face to keep the people of Israel from gazing at the end of the glory that was being set aside. But their minds were hardened. Indeed, to this very day, when they hear the reading of the Old Covenant, that same veil is still there, since only in Christ is it set aside. Now, the Lord is spirit, is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And all of us, with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord the Spirit. Today we're going to look at three brief things from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, firstly, we're going to look at what, ask the question, what is the glory reflected on Moses' face that was being set aside and why does it need to be set aside? Secondly, what does the veil mean on Moses' face and covering the minds of people? What is the veil? And number three, how does the unveiling and transformation from glory unto glory actually happen in us and to us? So just three, three things, but before we do that and embark on it, let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you so much that you love us and that you come to us and that you are present among us, even now as we gather in your presence We pray that we would hear your voice, the voice of our loving shepherd and glorious saviour. Sanctify us in the truth, Lord, for this your word is truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the glory, the glory, the glory reflected on Moses' face that was being set aside. Why does it need to be set aside if it's so wonderful and glorious? So we started, you heard in, in Paul, uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he quotes Exodus where Moses in Exodus 34 is coming down the mountain. We have coming down the mountain, we have going up the mountain today. Jesus and his disciples are going up, Moses is coming down and as he comes down, he comes down with the commandments of God, his face shining and reflecting the wonderful glory of the Lord. Well, what does this even mean? What does it mean that Moses' face, his skin is so radiant that it reflects the glory. So what? Firstly, it's a sign to the people of Israel and a sign to us as well as New Covenant people that it's not Moses who actually speaks to them. He speaks to them but someone is speaking through Moses to to his people and that is the Lord. It's the Lord that speaks to you, me and it was the Lord who spoke uh, to the people through Moses as well. Secondly, for them in Exodus 34, it's a joyful sign of covenant renewal after just two chapters before there was that deadly golden calf incident. Remember what happened? The people got uh, a bit uh, bored while Moses was up the hill. He was gone for a long time and, and uh, you remember what Aaron said to Moses. Uh, Moses is kind of saying to Moses, what's go- uh, to Aaron, what's going on? And Aaron's like a, a bit like a kid who's confronted by his parents with this great big mess that's happened and it's really obvious that he's done it and, uh, and the kid says, I don't know, it was just like that already. Ever done that? I've done that to my dad, don't worry. Aaron says to Moses, we put all this gold into the fire and melted it down and out came this golden calf. It just came out like that. It's hilarious. Well, maybe for a pastor it's hilarious. 
So as Moses comes down to speak with the people, they're afraid. They're afraid because of this amazing radiance and the skin on his face. But Moses, being this wonderful pastor, he calls them to himself, he speaks to them and then afterwards he puts the veil over his face like you saw Craig putting the veil over his head before. And why were the people afraid of this radiant glory reflected on Moses' face? What kind of picture do you think they had of the Lord? Maybe one that reflects that a little bit. When I was in my 20s, I had a really, well, my best friend actually, he spent a lot of time in the law courts um, and because he, well, he broke the law. And uh, as a friend, I would drive him to court, I would sit with him uh, in the Dandenong Law Courts waiting for his case to come forward and as you do that, obviously, there are lots of other cases going through and uh, for all intents and purposes, that his lawyer at the time was only really concerned with one thing and never really concerned with what he'd done. His main concern was who was the judge going to be on the day because depending on who the judge was on the day really determined what the outcome would be for my friend. And I don't know if you've ever been to court here in Cairns or sat in court or supported someone in court, but we had to spend all day there on a number of occasions. And the thing was, as you went through the cases and you sat there, people's posture before the judge was always, there's always a common thread there. As they come before the judge, one thing was certain, there wasn't, always, there wasn't very often very much eye contact with the judge. If you're guilty and you know it, how does your, how, what happens to your head? It drops, doesn't it? It drops. And not only does uh, your, your, your head drop, there's this anxiety and fear, you know, they get a bit edgy as well, what's going to happen? And then this whole downcast posture where you're kind of just a bit floppy. Floppy because you feel really bad about what you've done. You know you're facing a judge and so your head's down, your eyes are down and it's kind of a really awful kind of thing. The people's fear before Moses' glorious complexion flows from an awareness, an awareness of their own sinfulness before God. And I get that from uh, Paul saying in Galatians chapter 3, Verse 24, therefore, he says, the law was our disciplinarian. The law was our disciplinarian until Christ came so that we might be justified by faith. The law acts as a disciplinarian. It's not that the message of the law that Moses carries down isn't glorious. It is. It's the word of God. It's wonderful. It shows us the the righteous judgment and will of our Father. There's nothing wrong with it. But for the Israelites, it really revealed their mess, the messiness of their life. It it showed them their sin and the knowledge of sin and their breaking of the law. And so what we're seeing is them confronted with this righteous, almighty Yahweh and it's affecting people. It's It's making them aware of their own flaws and their own sinfulness. And so Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 calls Moses' ministry a ministry of death pretty serious words, a ministry of death. And the reason he says that is because without the unveiling of the promised Messiah, without the unveiling of the fulfilment of the Old Testament law and sacrificial system, the law only ever exposes sin. The law only ever will make demands of you and the law will only ever act as a disciplinarian. It shows you how much you need a saviour 
But no matter how much striving you do under the law, it won't save you. And so in this sense, it's the glorious will of God expressed through his word, but its glory fades in comparison to the new and complete and eternal ministry of the gospel that Paul is preaching in 2 Corinthians 3 with all his might. This ministry gloriously fulfills every requirement of the law. It cleanses people of their sin. It frees them from the death, uh, the, the, the judgment of death and from the disciplinarian of the law. Imagine that. It establishes and roots them in the gospel to live in the freedom of the spirit forever. Just as Matthew, that's what happened to you and to the kids today. So the fading glory of Moses' ministry, it must be set aside. It must be set aside for the sake of the life and the freedom and the forgiveness of God's people. And that only comes through the unveiling light of the gospel. So what about this veil? What about this veil? Here's a picture of a veil that was used at a contemporary Jewish wedding in Israel about three weeks ago. It was a big wedding, obviously. The veil separates the men from the women. So the women stand together and they peer through at what's going on in the other section where all the men are. Now, the veil is also used at some Jewish synagogues to separate the men and the women and the children are included in that separation by gender. This is in very much orthodox Jewish synagogues. And I was reading a blog of uh, this Jewish woman who was explaining just how wonderful the veil is for her relationship with God. And she, well, the first thing is she doesn't have to look after her son at the synagogue. So if he gets antsy and is running around and mum, 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 that doesn't happen because he's with dad. So dad has, dad has the son with him and, and that's his joy. But beyond her son, one of the most significant blessings that she saw in the veil was that no men would be looking at her, so no ogling eyes gazing at her. But also, her husband wouldn't be able to try and hold her hand during church. He wouldn't be able to give her a kiss on the cheek or anything like that or or just kind of disturb her while she's trying to pray. So, you know, and I thought, oh, well, that sounds legit. Some people like to have their personal space and that's okay. Um, But then she says the whole purpose of eliminating the distractions, hear this, is so that she can concentrate on praying in such a way that she might be able to connect with God and if she can manage to clear away all the distractions so that she can connect with God, then maybe he would listen to her, hear her prayers and answer her. For this woman... The gift of prayer, God's gift of prayer is a law. One more law embedded in the 613 other laws that modern Jewish people strive to keep to this very day. So the quality of her prayer, her sincerity, her echoing the right words, using the right formula, that all determines whether God is pleased to hear and answer her. Do you think that... The Lord hears your prayers only when you can manage to clear away every distraction, when you can manage to clear away every ungodly thought from your mind and focus solely on Him. I mean, is that even possible? If you think that's true, then your heart is veiled and you're living under the burden of the law. Martin Luther struggled to pray the Lord's Prayer without his mind wandering off somewhere during praying the Lord's Prayer. Do you experience that? I have. 
It's very difficult to pray the Lord's Prayer or something that you know very well and to not wander a little bit. In the Sunday paper today, because this affects our church too, it doesn't just affect Jewish people, it affects Gentiles like us. There's a saying in the announcements in your, in your Sunday paper, it says, God helps those who help themselves. You heard that? God helps those who help themselves. You listen to Face to Face to hear more about that but that is a mindset that is veiled to the grace and mercy of God. It is a mindset that is veiled to the gospel but rolls off the tongue of Christian men and women. God helps those who help themselves. The fact is if you're sufficient to help yourself, if you're sufficient in and of yourself to look after yourself and meet your own needs, what do you need the glory of the gospel for? You wouldn't need it. You don't need it. You don't need a saviour. Your heart is veiled. Or what about if the Father's love and forgiveness only seem real to you, tangible to you when you're you're doing nice things for people or when you're serving in the church? Your heart is veiled to the Father's grace. Lee and I went up to the Tablelands not that long ago and when we arrived at the Atherton Church. Uh, the people at Atherton, they really do a wonderful job of looking after the grounds and their, and their church. But when we rocked up this day, the lawns were beautifully mowed, weren't they, Lee? Yep, they looked beautiful. And I remember because I commented to you as we drove in, oh, the lawns have just been mowed and it looked lovely. thing is, none of the members at Atherton had mowed the lawn. And what had happened was, uh, at the end of the service, uh, I was uh, announcing the blessing and uh, as you're sitting and you're facing the front door of the church, there's a big crack in the door where it meets the wall, where it's hinged. And, and I could see a person standing there in the crack as I'm doing this and even before I did the blessing. And I can see and then there's an eye that looks through the crack and you're like, yeah, there's someone there and they're looking through the church. And uh, so I finished the blessing and said, hello. And this gentleman comes in and he walks down the front of the church and he says, I'm the guy that mowed your lawns. And we said, well, thank you, that's, that's wonderful. That, thank you very much. Yep, I mowed the lawns. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. But as we got talking, it was, became very clear that here was a man who was suffering under the burden of the law and the judgment of his own sin. He was very aware of his own sins. He thought, well, maybe I'll sweeten God up. I'll mow his lawn for him because any, any man will love it if, you, if your lawn gets mowed. When the grass looks good, that's wonderful. I'll mow his lawn and then that will give me a reason that God might welcome me into the church because I've mowed the grass. I've done something nice. I've done a good thing for God. He'll be pleased with that and then I can enter in. Pray for him. Pray for him. You don't need to know his name. Here's a man whose heart is veiled to the grace and love of God that the Father doesn't expect him to mow the church grounds but welcomes him in out of free grace and mercy and love, welcomes him in, doesn't expect him to to mow the lawn to make him pleased with him so that he can even have contact with him. That's what the veil is about. The veil is a way of describing how our hearts can be blind to the light and grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This man wouldn't let me pray for him because he didn't feel as though he was worthy of any grace or love. 
pray for him. That veil covers every bitter and unbelieving heart, Jew and Gentile alike, and it places people under the demands and burdens and judgment of the law. The Bible says the letter kills. It kills. Strong language. The letter, the law kills. But the Spirit gives life. The Spirit gives life. And there's only one who can remove the veil and open our eyes to see the glory of the Lord to be transformed by his wonderful mercy and grace. Only in Jesus Christ is the veil removed. But how, final point, how does that happen to you? How does that unveiling actually take place? How does that transformation from one degree of glory to another actually work in you? How is it working in you right now as you sit and hear? It happens in a way that made the Apostle Paul so excited, so animated as you read 2 Corinthians 3. He's excited about the ministry of the Spirit at work through the Gospel. He's excited to not be the the bringer of this uh, message so much as to participate in what the Lord is already doing in his church. He's excited to be a recipient of himself of such extraordinary grace and freedom as one who was a Pharisee and lived under the constant demand and disciplinarian view of the law. He was a Pharisee. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the Spirit and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And all of us with unveiled faces seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. How does it happen to you? How is it happening to you today? Because that's what Paul's talking about. He's not giving you some information about something. He's excited because the glory of the gospel is at work in the hearts and lives of real people listening to the voice of their Saviour. And we're going to learn something today from church history. Lord, grant that we may learn it well. This was written for children this is an explanation of what, of what Paul's talking about here. It's written for kids. I believe that by my own reason or strength, I cannot believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him, but the Holy Spirit has called me through the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts and sanctified and preserved me in true faith, just as he calls and gathers and lightens and sanctifies the whole Christian church on earth and preserves it in union with Jesus Christ in the one true faith. Martin Luther wrote that for children It's an explanation of what we said together, Matthew, when you and Bryce and Johnny were baptised. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. That's the explanation of what you already confessed. The Holy Spirit is at work in you. He's calling, he's enlightening He is bestowing gifts upon you. He is sanctifying you. He is preserving you in faith. All on account of 
the grace of God the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. By faith the Holy Spirit has united your life to the risen and reigning Jesus, your radiant and glorious Lord whose glory never fades and surpasses that of what was that ministry of death of Moses. It's the Lord transfigured in glory today before he descended the mountain with a new exodus in view. An exodus that would free you from every accusation and demand of the law forever. An exodus that would cleanse you from every sin and deliver you from slavery, hear this, for freedom through the cross. Deliver you from slavery for freedom through the cross. That means that you are free people. Completely free. In union with Christ, his perfect keeping of the law is credited to you. Imagine that. Jesus' perfect keeping of the law is given to you in union with him. His death on the cross saves you. You've been raised with Christ and seated in the heavenly realms. It means there's nothing, nothing for you anymore to strive for. You've, you don't have to strive for anything Everything is yours in him. You are a free person. Only by the power of the Holy Spirit will you comprehend this. Lord, grant this to us all. And the Lord knows, friends, and I know very well, that I need constant reminding of this. This is not something that I just know and because I live in a contended reality as you do where there is a spiritual battle going on for your mind, where the evil one works to actually rob you of that knowledge of your union with Jesus Christ. The evil one works to rob you of the knowledge that Christ has fulfilled the law perfectly for you and that's been credited to you. He says, no, 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 no. You have to strive. You have to work. You have to mow God's lawn in order for him to be pleased with you. He wants to rob you of that. And so we fix our gaze, we fix our eyes on Jesus and with unveiled faces the Holy Spirit works in us, transforming us constantly by the renewing of our minds. It's an ongoing thing. The constant renewing of our minds. When we gather and we hear that gospel, we are able and enabled to be in his presence. Friends, the Lord has done great things for us. May we be filled with the fullness of his joy. Amen. And may the peace of God which surpasses all human understanding guard your hearts and your minds and keep you safe in Christ Jesus. Amen.